Welcome to episode 393 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Alrighty guys, welcome along to episode 393 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles, and it's it's actually only just Bevan James Isles today. John has gone on holiday and uh, he wasn't too keen on getting shows out over the holiday period, and I thought, well, I, I like to keep momentum going, and so the couple of shows of the next couple of weeks are going to be a little bit different to what we've done in the past, because um, we haven't really pre-recorded these shows for the holiday season, and in the past, what we previously have done is just put shows on, you know, interviews from throughout the year, uh, but this year, I'm just going to do something slightly different, and I'm just going to put a couple of my fitness behavior podcasts, and uh, to this week's in particular, I've got a couple great interviews, which I feel, you know, anybody who likes I Am Talk will probably get a lot of value out of them, so I'm going to put those on in a second, but before we do, just today's sponsors, uh, I Am Talk is proudly brought to you by Coffees of Hawaii for the world's tastiest coffee, athlinks.com, social networking for endurance athletes, extreme endurance, your lactic buffer, and uh, SLS Try, the cool triathlon gear. So in today's show, so it might just, if you don't know, I do I do another podcast called Fitness Behaviour, and it's it's kind of completely different to what I do here on uh, I Am Talk. I Am Talk's probably more of a news type show, whereas Fitness Behaviour is really around the whole idea of how do we... You know, how do you, the mind of, of fitness, how do we help people learn how to have the mindset of fitness and really move towards people loving exercise and having a lifetime love of exercise? And kind of in my career, that's always the thing I'm driving towards push people pushing, pushing people towards. So, um, and, you know, I put it, it's only a monthly show, so I only put it out monthly and it's, um, yeah, it's pretty successful. It's actually got a bigger audience than I am talk and it goes all around the world and, uh, yeah, so I know it's, it's kind of cool, but this year I interviewed two people in particular who uh, just were really great interviews, and the first was a lady called Carol Dweck. Now, Carol Dweck is the publisher of a book called Mindset, and Mindset is one of the most influential books, I would say, in uh, social psychology, really, in that uh, if you read any books on, you know, kind of the mind, uh, you'll you'll probably hear of Carol Dweck's name come up quite a lot. Like I was listening to a book the other day, and uh, Carol's name came up there, and uh, she just she's done some really influential work that's really shifted a lot of thinking around uh, the way the mind we bring into certain situations and um, how that influences our outcomes. And um, I think a lot of you guys will probably get a lot of value listening to her talk around this area because there's. You know, as athletes, you know the mindset you bring into your athletic performance has a mass, massive influence on uh, your, not only your training but the outcomes you get in your race. So, I'll probably put her interview on second, um, and then the first interview I'm going to put on is by a guy called Lance Dodes. I think it was, was how we pronounced his name. And uh, Lance Dodes, he, he's got this book, and I haven't got it in here in front of me, but he, he's basically an addiction specialist, and and he deals a lot with. People who have addictions to huge problems like with like big drugs or alcohol or gambling and those types of problems. But his interview was phenomenal, to be honest. The insight he shared around um, a deeper understanding of what causes addiction. And I thought the reason I put it on here is because, let's be honest, 
the Ironman athlete, especially the seasoned Ironman athlete, tends to have a kind of an addictive personality. Now, the thing about us Ironman triathletes is that we've learned to kind of nurture that into an area where, you know, it's empowering and it's positive and it's, you know, it's much better than being an alcoholic or a drug addict. But there is maybe some some people out there listening to this who, you know, maybe there's a side of yourself that you need to work on around addiction. So I'm, I'm going to chuck that on uh with this interview with Lance, and I think you get some really good insight to it. Just one thing before I put the interview on with Lance is that um, at the time I just, I think I had the flu, so I don't sound that flash myself, but you know what, it's not really about my talking, it's about Lance's talking, so I'm going to put that on in a few seconds, and before we do, I was going to talk about one of the sponsors, and the first sponsor I'm going to talk about today is the lovely Coffees of Hawaii. Coffees of Hawaii is the world's best coffee, that's all I'm going to say, it's as simple as that. If you love coffee, and, and it's funny, isn't it? For you coffee drinkers out there right now, you know that you like nice coffee. There's nothing worse than bad coffee. The person I think of is my dad. My dad, (laughs) we went over to Bali a few years ago. My dad and I, it's my 30th kind of birthday present from my parents. And my dad and I had three weeks in Bali and it it was an awesome experience. And my dad at breakfast, we have like buffet breakfast. And my dad, he would uh, he could literally have like ten coffees in the morning. Now it was excessive, but he loves his coffee. And uh, and people who love coffee, it's one of those things in life that doesn't cost you a lot to have a finer quality, a finer, you know, experience around the coffee you drink. So if you know you love someone who just you know you love coffee, you know. To go to Coffees of Hawaii and get some of their coffee, it's going to be a real treat for yourself. And it's that daily treat that you can just kind of, you know, get up in the morning, make yourself in Coffees of Hawaii, and, and you know, you're just putting yourself on the good foot forward for the day forward. Now, I'm on the website right now, and if you spend $80 or more and uh, you use the discount code FedEx Two Day Shipping, oh, FedEx Two Day Shipping is free. So if you're in the US and you're listening to this and you want to get some FedEx Two Day Shipping, if it's more than $80 spend, you get it for free. And you use the discount code F. S-8-O-L-C at checkout. So go to coffeesofhawaii.com, guys. Okay, well, I'm going to get straight into the show with Lance. Here's Lance. Um, check out the interview. I think you guys are going to get a lot of value from it. Here we go. Right, our team, um, it's great pleasure today. I don't often get guests on the show, but I got a question a while ago from one of you guys around the idea of addiction and uh, food addiction, and it's not an area that I'm really strong in regards to my knowledge, and so I thought, well, I'll do some research, and I, I went and read quite a few books on the idea of addiction and, and uh, general addiction, and how do you take that into food addiction, and there was one writer in particular that really seemed to hit a note with me, uh, I, wrote, I read a book of his called Breaking Addictions, and it was a uh, I just thought it's a really, really great book, and I thought, well, if I can get to him and get him on the show, it'd be much better to listen to him talk about this concept of addiction, and and you know how do we think about this in regards to eating and exercise addictions as well. And his name was Lance Dodis, and uh, so I got in contact with him, and, and we're very fortunate today to have him on the show. So welcome along, Lance. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it really is a privilege. So Lance, um, maybe before we even get into the addiction stuff, just want to give us a little bit of your history around your education and what drew you into you know, going down this path within your field. Well, sure. I'm a physician and um, I am a psychiatrist. Um, and when I 
uh, finished my psychiatry training, I was uh, working as uh, running the the psychiatry service at a general medical hospital, and we uh, decided to open an alcoholism treatment center. Uh, And at the time, I didn't know much about alcoholism or addiction in general, so uh, I uh, uh, got to talking to some people who helped me to open the, the unit and learn more about it, and then began reading more about it. And uh, at the same time, I was in a training to become a psychoanalyst. So the two things happened at the same time, and I became very interested in trying to understand addiction from its deeper psychological roots. And over the years, um, I ended up running the addiction treatment service at another uh, Harvard hospital called McLean Hospital. Uh, and um, uh, I began writing about what I had learned about the psychology of addiction and actually the, the very psychological nature of addiction. So currently, I'm a uh, assistant clinical professor at Harvard Medical School, and I'm what's called a training and supervising analyst at the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute here in the States. Um, so I've ended up marrying those two kinds of things together and uh, eventually wrote the two books, um, The Heart of Addiction and then uh, Breaking Addiction, uh, which came out in 2011. So, so it was interesting when I read Breaking Addiction. Um, I think there's probably a lot of traditional thinking around addiction, and, and it was, I was surprised um, with some of the things that I learned from your book. And I think maybe a good place to start is when we think about addiction, what are some of the traditional thoughts that are around addiction that you've found aren't necessarily what people should be focusing on? Well, uh, one that I hope everyone knows by now is that addiction has nothing to do with being immoral uh, or being crazy. Uh, But for thousands of years, people thought that if you were drinking, for example, out of control, then there must be something weak about you or bad about you, or you didn't have any sense of what was right or wrong, any of that stuff. None of that, of course, is true. the other thing that's become very popular in recent years, and still many people believe, even though it's not true, is uh, about uh, 10, 10 years ago or so, um, a group of neurobiologists uh, looking into the, uh, the, uh, uh, the brain chemistry that might be involved in addiction came up with a conclusion, which everyone now sort of half believes and which is completely wrong, that addiction is due to a brain disease. They called it a chronic brain disease. And there's, if, if you want, we can talk about that later, but there's, the idea is completely wrong. It, it does apply to rats. So any of your listeners who are rats probably should listen to it. But as far as human beings, it simply doesn't apply. So um, those are two of the main things. Uh, and then I guess related to that is if once you understand the psychology behind addiction, it makes it clear that folks with addictions are no different from anyone else and also should be treated no different from anyone else. In other words, they are pers- perfectly capable of, capable of coming to understand themselves and why they do things just like anyone else. So, so you don't need to send them off to some special place to get special, you know, whatever that will be specific to addictions but doesn't apply to the rest of the human uh, race. Now, one thing um, that my listeners were interested in was the idea of food addiction. And uh, I imagine you deal with lots of different types of addictions. Can you give us some examples of the different types of addictions you deal with? Well, most common, of course, are various uh, substance addictions, starting with alcoholism, but also every other conceivable drug. Um, But uh, for a few years, I also ran 
the largest gambling, compulsive gambling clinic in my state, in Massachusetts, in, in the U.S. Um, so I had quite a bit of experience treating compulsive gamblers. Um, and it turns out that whether it's a drug addiction or whether it's a non-drug addiction like gambling or eating, for that matter, yep. or internet watching, yep. they all share the same uh, psychology. They all share the same emotional basis, even though they all look different from each other. And one of the ways that we know that for sure is that people switch back and forth between them, which wouldn't be possible if there was some fundamental difference among them. Forty uh, percent of people with compulsive gambling, for example, are alcoholics. And it's very common to see folks go from um, uh, drinking to overeating to gambling and then even to something that we don't even call an addiction. It's another compulsive behavior, another driven behavior, but we don't call it an addiction. Something like house cleaning. Yep. You can certainly be a compulsive house cleaner, but we don't usually call it an addiction. But it, from a psychological standpoint, it is. It, they're all the same. So, so then you're saying that it's not necessarily the outcome as such, that, you know, so it's not necessarily that, you know, I'm doing drugs or I'm gambling. It's, it's more the emotional process that led you to that behavior? Yes, that's exactly right. So then what, what, when we're thinking about that emotional process, what are the things you – because know, when in your book you talk about the idea that there's a difference between addiction and just like a bad habit. So maybe before we start, how would you know the difference? Well, uh, the, the difference is that um, uh, habits are, from a psychological standpoint, very superficial. They're, they're not deep ingrained uh, behaviors that are driven by something important inside of you. They're just habits. And um, that's partly why habits, on the whole, are fairly easy to break, certainly easier than addictions, uh, because there's just no deep meaning to them. You get used to doing them. And, and of course, habits are, are actually necessary for a living, because if you didn't have the habit of tying your shoes absentmindedly, you'd have to think about it every time. And if you didn't have habits of doing things that, to get you through the day, You'd, you'd spend all of your time thinking about what you had to do next. So habits are, are a very different kind of animal. Addictions are deeply driven. They have important meanings to people, and that's why they're so hard to, to break. So, so they're quite different. Can you give an example? I suppose someone listening right now, because food is such an interesting area right now in society because it's so, um, a lot of processed foods are now getting driven. We had an interview with another um, top food person a few months ago and they were talking about how they're, you know, designing food to almost make them addictive to us. And, uh, you know, it's a very interesting time around, you know, the making of food and people are creating these habits. I suppose, how would I know that I'm not somebody who's just got a habit or I have an addiction? Well, uh, the, 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 the real way to do it, if, you're, if you end up being unsure, the only way to do it really and ultimately is to talk to somebody and figure it out psychologically because they really, once you start to get into the roots of it, they look completely different. But on the surface, um, one of the basic ways you can tell is habits tend to be things that you do in a certain circumstance or a certain time of the day. Okay. You know, every time you get up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee. That's not an addiction. Um, but addictions are triggered by emotionally important things, not just, you know, being in a store or being at a place or a time. Something upsets you 
and then you have to go eat. Okay. That's that's the kind of thing that happens in addiction because it's 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 precipitated by an emotion something that is emotionally important and, and usually upsetting to you. So so when it's um, a habit, it's it's twelve o'clock. I always have a bit of chocolate. When it's an addiction, something bad's happened in my life. I go to chocolate. Yes, and they and they they you know they can also the experience of them is somewhat different. I mean, habits, you, you may be annoyed if someone stands in your way because you, you want to get to the coffee in the morning or the chocolate, yep. but you're not going to be that upset. But, it, you know, obviously with people who need to do something from a psychological standpoint, they get very upset if you try to block them. And, and you can see that for yourself. If, if you try to block yourself, you'll pretty soon, you know, ignore your own good advice. Mm. So, so then, for the people out there listening right now, when they start to identify, like some people will be listening to this and they'll go, oh, I know that for me it's around, you know, I, I, it's when I'm emotional, I instantly look to this certain behavior. And, and obviously, we're talking a bit more about food today, but it might be alcohol, it might be drugs or, or certain things. What are some steps that they can look to work towards to actually learning to have to, to move forward from this or, or to progress forward? Well, uh, the best way I think to explain that would be to describe what I think the psychology of addiction is, and this applies as much to food addiction as to any other. Great. So, so uh, the example I usually give is somebody with alcoholism, but it really I can I can pretend the example is about food, and it really doesn't change anything. Yep. Um, so, but let me tell you the actual story, which was about alcohol. But I think your listeners will identify with it. Um, I was. This was also the first story in my in my first book, The Heart of Addiction. I was seeing a man who, in treatment, who uh, had alcoholism, and at the time of this vignette, uh, he had been sober for six months. So you could translate that in terms of eating to he had not had an eating binge, or he had not eaten things he he shouldn't eat uh, for six months. Yep. In any event, so now six months had gone by, and he was doing quite well. And one day he came in and he said, uh, "Well, Doc, I, I blew it." I, I drank. So I said, what happened? And he told me this story. He said that he and his wife had gone downtown into the city and they were going to do different things, but they were going to meet at a certain spot at a certain time. So he dropped her off and then he parked the car. And then later he did his shopping. And when the appointed time came, he showed up, but she didn't. And he waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and she didn't show up. Mm. Now, she... Uh, was often late. So he wasn't worried. But his problem was, this was in the days before cell phones, he had no way of contacting her. And he couldn't just go sit in the car because he had dropped her off before he parked. So she didn't know where the car was. He was absolutely trapped on the spot there. He was completely helpless. And then he said he spotted a bar across the street or down uh, and down a block. And I suppose we could translate it into he spotted the restaurant or the bakery or the food store. And he decided he would go in and get a drink, which he did. So that was the story. So I said to him, well, look, did it help? And he said, yes. And I said, tell me, when did you start to feel better? And at first he said, well, you know, I was drinking. But then he stopped himself and he said, I actually started to feel better when I ordered the drink. And I said, huh. And then he thought for another minute and he said, I actually started to feel better when I walked in the bar. And I said, huh. And, and then he thought. And finally, he said, if you want to know the very first time I started to feel better, 
It was when I was standing on that street corner and I decided to go get a drink. Mm. So I've heard this is just a, a vignette, but I've heard this from so many people now, and it doesn't depend on which kind of addictive behavior it is. It certainly could be eating. It could be shopping. It could be drinking. But the key moment in addiction is the moment when people decide to do it, not when they're doing it, and certainly not after they've done it, when they're all the bad effects. Mm. So that clued me into uh, looking at that moment. And what we discovered, I mean, it raised the question, you know, of course, he anticipated he would get a drink. But why did he feel so much better? Why was the problem solved just by deciding? Well, after we talked about it a little bit, we realized that he actually had solved his problem by deciding. Because what his problem was, was that he was helpless. He, uh, there was nothing he could do. He couldn't move. He couldn't leave. He couldn't call her. But as soon as he decided to have a drink, now he could and would do something that he believed would help him. So he didn't feel helpless. He was out of the trap. So and that, okay, Sorry, you keep going. Well, I was just going to say, and that carried through and the rest when he walked down there and had the drink. But he was already better before he even had any alcohol in his body. And uh, so that told me what ended up being the first part of my ideas about addiction. There were three parts to it. But the first part is addiction in general serves a psychological function. And what it does is it gets you out of that helplessness trap by making the decision. The job of addiction is to reverse helplessness. Now, I have to say a few things about this. First of all, everybody is different. So you can't just walk up to somebody and say that and say, now I understand you. The point is, everybody's helplessness that is overwhelming for them is different from the next person. And this turns out, if to, just to jump ahead, this turns out to be very important in treatment. Because once you learn what emotionally is overwhelmingly help makes you feel overwhelmingly helpless, you will also have discovered the thing that is the most troubling for you in your life emotionally. They're always the same for a good reason, because you're only one person. So it's always that thing or that set of things that, that is the most troubling that you can't stand that leads to the addiction and also leads to the rest of the problems in your life. So that was the first part. Go ahead. Oh, can you just give maybe an example of, of the helplessness? Maybe or of, you know, I hear what you're saying. You're kind of saying that really there's a key moment where we feel helpless and it's almost like making it addictive choice that makes us feel a sense of control, which leads to, or, or some kind of emotional overcoming that helplessness, which then leads to us doing the addictive behavior, which then obviously the negative flow on effect of that. Can you maybe give us an example of, you know, when people have felt helpless and, you know, what that feels like or how would you know you're there? Well, uh, I, yeah, I agree with everything you said, except I would reverse one piece. I, I think the addiction, it turns out, and actually I'm coming to this, but the addiction is it is the uh, solution to the problem. I oh, mean, okay. The, the, you know, you are, I mean, the example I just gave, I, I mean, there are many more in the book, of course, but the example I get, get, just gave, he, he felt helpless. He, now, you might wonder, by the way, why was this so overwhelming to him? What's the big deal having mm. to wait for your life? Well, and this is why I was saying every person is different. So once I got to know him and, and he got to know himself, we, we learned why that was so overwhelming. It turns out that when he was a child, he had been one of these latchkey children. He had come home after school from a very young age, let himself into his house. There was no one in the house at the time. And he spent a, quite a long time, especially for a small child, 
waiting for his parents to come home. And he was frightened and he was lonely. Now, it wasn't just that one thing. That was just an example of it. But there was a lot of that kind of thing in his childhood. And it turned out that having to wait for somebody had a deep meaning for him. Mm-hmm. And it, it was overwhelming for him. He felt utterly helpless. He had to do something. So that's what he did. And and so that's when, so those moments, you know, obviously by discovering those moments, then he would be able to make different choices or put different plans in place. Ultimately, yes. And and uh, so so let me just continue because you're yep, right. Yep, sorry. Uh, yep. So, yep. So so that was the first point. Now the second point was just to return to the man on the corner. I said to him, "Okay, look, you know, uh, you've been trying hard to not drink." And you've been doing a pretty good job of it for all these months. So let me ask you a question. At that key moment, when you decided to go get a drink, was there a conflict inside of you? Did you go back and forth? Did you say, well, gosh, you know, I really feel like getting a drink, but I'm trying to stop. Was there a a fight going on inside of you? And he looked me right in the eye, and I won't say his exact words because I don't know the audience for this show. (laughs) Basically said uh, a stronger version of, Damn it, I'm going to go to get a drink. So uh, almost all people, when you ask them about that moment, they say that or they say a synonym for damn it, usually stronger. Yep. So I got interested in that. What did that mean? What was He was expressing a very strong feeling. In fact, this feeling was so strong, it didn't matter that he had spent six months trying to deal with his drinking. Nothing else mattered. He, by God, he was going to do it. So this was a kind of anger, really a kind of rage. So because rage has that kind of characteristic, you know, once you're in the throes of a rage, nothing else matters. You throw things around and later you'll regret it. But but that's takes takes over your 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 mind at that point. Mm. So if he was enraged, then the next question I wondered about is what was he so angry about? And that one was easier to figure out because we already knew that he was feeling helpless. And it turns out that one of the things that is true of all people, and is quite normal, is that when you are overwhelmingly helpless, rage is actually a normal response. Let me give you an example. If you were exploring in a cave, and all of a sudden 200 tons of rock fell between you and the opening, now you're in a dark cave, and you're utterly trapped. Well, you might try to stay calm, but it won't last long. Pretty soon you'll be yelling and screaming. You'll be pounding at the rocks. You might even break your wrist trying to break through the rocks. That kind of intense, really almost physical reaction, you know, you're going to do whatever you have to do the way animals, you know, can sometimes bite off their arm to get out of a trap. Mm-hmm. You'll do whatever you have to do to get out of this trap. Well, that's a normal reaction. If you instead got caved in and you sat down and twiddled your thumbs and waited to die, that would be abnormal. Mm. So the rage that occurs when you're overwhelmingly helpless is not the problem. But the problem is that when you uh, uh, is that certain is that circumstances make you overwhelmingly helpless that wouldn't make someone else feel overwhelmingly helpless. This man wasn't actually in a cave and he was just waiting, but it felt like that. Mm. So the rage, it turns out, was rage at helplessness and uh the feelings of rage, the feelings that you're going to do something no matter what, even if it's disastrous consequences, that's what gives to addiction its so-called addictive properties. That's what addiction looks like and feels like. It feels like a rage. 
I'm going to do it. I don't care. It doesn't make any difference who gets hurt. Even people I love can get hurt. At that moment, I'm going to do it. And later, of course, I regret it, both for myself and others. So it's important. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. You keep going. So if that is so, then I think it helps to explain why addiction looks the way it does. It also incidentally helps to explain why things like education don't really help that much with addiction because you can be as educated as you want to be. You can know everything you want to know about what it's like to be in a cave-in, but you're still going to be enraged. And uh, that isn't a good treatment for, for addiction for that reason. And reasoning with people isn't a good treatment either. Yeah, so it's almost like you're saying once you experience hopelessness, the rage makes you lose all rationality anyway. So even if you, you know, for six months beforehand, you're on this good diet or, or you're staying away from alcohol, once you hit that moment, that decision process dies and you instantly have this 100% focus to, to do the rage behavior. That, that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. So, uh, so now I felt I had two pieces of the puzzle out of the three. That I, I knew what addiction uh, what the function of it was to reverse helplessness. I knew what drove addiction and to give it its form. That was the rage at helplessness. But there was still another question in my mind. You could have all that, but why did he have to go get a drink? Or let's say, why did he have to go eat? Well, in order to figure that one out, we have to go back a step. Remember I said he was helpless because he couldn't contact his wife. But was he really helpless? And the answer is no. He actually could have done something. He could have left. He could have just walked home or gotten in his car. Now, that would have abandoned his wife, and that would have been a problem in itself. But he could have done it. Now, he didn't do it precisely because he cared about his wife. He didn't want to abandon her. But he had a direct way out. And I'm not saying he should have. But I will say this. If he did do that, if he had taken a more direct way of expressing his need to get out of his helplessness, I don't think he would have had a drink. Mm. He wouldn't have had to. No need. He wouldn't. He wouldn't have even had to get really enraged because he would have said, "I'm not waiting anymore. I'm out of here." And then the problem was solved. And what that tells me is that instead of doing a direct act, since he had to do something, he did the another act. In his case, it was drinking. For another person, it would be eating. So my final piece of how I understand addiction is. All addictions are what I call displacements, or you could use the word substitutes, for a more direct action. If he had taken a more direct action, he wouldn't have had to do the addictive behavior. But instead, he did a substitute behavior, which for him, typically, was drinking. For another person, again, it would be something else. Yep. So the idea that addictions are really just displacements or substitutes helps to explain something else we know about addictions, which is people switch addictions all the time. Yep. You know, they, they, as what I said before. So it, how, how is it that you can go from being a, uh, a food addict to being a gambling addict to being somebody who can't stop cleaning his house? How do you explain that? Mm. They seem different things. But if you think of them as just substitutions, that's all they are. And people can relatively easily shift their substitute behavior, their displacement from one thing to another. So, so, so are you kind of saying that basically, okay, you have your dissatisfaction, you have your rage, and it's almost like you forget that you have other choices at that moment. And ideally, if you can figure out you're in a rage or you're in that, you know, the helpless moment, 
that if you can start to learn that you do have other options that will move you away from the addiction? Well, that that's right. So in order to uh, help people to do this, um, and this is, you know, as you know, this is a, a big part of the book Breaking Addiction. Yeah. Um, people can find other solutions, but the key is you can't prescribe a solution for somebody else. It, it doesn't work to say to someone with a food addiction, when you feel like eating, go take a walk. That That's completely useless. Mm. The reason it's useless is because it doesn't really address the problem. Unless somebody really said, I no longer feel overwhelmingly helpless when I take a walk, but that's rarely the case. Yeah. So let me give you an example of, of another way of finding a substitute solution. This is also in in one of the two books, this is a woman who had a Percodan addiction. So she would, you know, I don't know if the, what, is that the same drug in, in uh, New Zealand? Uh, it's it. Oxycodone. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yep. Uh, okay, so anyway, um, so she got these pills from a doctor who really didn't mind giving out lots of pills to people without paying any attention to what they were doing with them. And so she kept on using this. Now, she was a, a woman who had a kind of domineering husband, and she tended to be pretty submissive. So what would happen is, uh, one typical thing is he would call up in the middle of the day. He was a businessman. He would call up and he would say, I'm bringing business people home for dinner. Prepare a company dinner, you know, prepare a, a, a guest dinner. And she hated these, by the way, and she hated to especially hear about it at the last minute. But she would say, yes, dear. And then she would get off the phone and then she would go to the medicine cabinet and take a couple of Percodans and then she'd go and get the dinner. So this is a pretty clear example of what I was describing. She was helpless mostly because she made herself so meek. Yep. But once she was in that trap, she had to do something. And her something for her was taking Percodans. Yep. And then once she took them, she was no longer helpless and she went about doing the thing. So it's almost well, like there was her rage moment and her responses to take the drug. That's right. Yep. Her, her, she solved the rage. She didn't have to be right. She expressed the rage. Really, would be another way to say it yep. by taking the drug. Although consciously, she was barely aware that she was angry. All she knew was that she had to get a drug. Oh, okay. So, so that's the thing that they don't. When you're addictive, you don't even know. You're not consciously going, "Oh, I'm addictive now. I need to go for the drug." It's just I have this emotional response. I need something. Right, oh, yep. right. It, or yep. you're, you're mostly not, I mean, it's common to not be in touch with the rage consciously, although yep. it's very close to the surface. Yep. And the way you can, I mean, so mostly people say, I'm upset, I just I, I just got to go eat. Yeah. And they don't, they don't notice the piece in the middle. Yeah, yeah. But, and if, you want, if you want to see it, all you have to do is say, no, 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 you can't have that donut. And then you'll see the rage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay, so, so this woman, she went to the medicine cabinet, and uh, that was her usual thing. Well, one day she came in and she said to me, well, it happened again. And I said, what? She, and she told me the story. She said, well, he, my husband, he called again in the middle of the day, same thing, make dinner. And she said, I know what I should have done. I, I should have said to him, make your own damn dinner. She said, but I really, I couldn't do that. So again, I said, yes, dear. I hung up the phone and I walked over to the medicine cabinet just the way I always do. And I opened the medicine cabinet. I'm staring at the vial of pills. She said, but I found a way out. And I said, what? And she said, well, I, I, I was wishing I had told him to make his own damn dinner. But I realized there was something in the middle I could do. That would have been the best. But there was something I could still do. I said, what? She said, I decided to order in Chinese food. Oh. And the interesting thing is that 
She said, as soon as I realized I could order a Chinese food, my addictive urge vanished. Mm-hmm. So this seemed like a miracle to her, but actually it made perfect sense because she had found another substitute behavior. It wasn't that she said the best. She should have just stood up to him. But she found something else that got her out of the helplessness trap. And so she didn't need the pills. She had found something else and something that was better, really, Mm -hmm. better solution. So one of the messages from this, and that I talk about in the book, is you don't have to find the perfect solution. And you just don't have to have all the issues of your life worked out to solve an addiction, although that would be nice. But even though she hadn't quite worked it out, you can find something that deals specifically with what your problem is, what's making you helpless. And if you do that thing or any of those things, you can avoid doing the addictive act because you will have solved it another way. So, so, so I suppose the question I have, Lance, you know, because a lot of what's really interesting is I, I imagine a lot of people who are addictive in nature will know that they have these areas and, and obviously food is our area today, but is they think that they just lack willpower in the moment. They, they think they what? Lack willpower in the moment. Oh, would, that, right. would that be fair to say? Uh, well, no. I think the problem with that is that that's how people ended up calling folks with addictions weak. They said yeah. they don't have willpower. No, that's that's completely untrue. It's that any it's to go back to the cave analogy. You can have as much willpower as you want, but you're still going to be pounding on those rocks and breaking your wrist. And, and on top of that, excuse me. Let me turn off this yep, phone. that's okay. Um, on top of that. Um, sometimes people with addictions are told they're self-destructive, mm. but that's wrong too. Cause of course the results are destructive, but w- what would you say to somebody who broke his wrist trying to get out of a cave in? Would yeah. you say you're self-destructive? Of course not. And that's the way it works. When in the throes of that kind of experience, everything else is out the window. You're not inherently self-destructive. You're not masochistic. You're not lacking in willpower. It's just that it, those things are overwhelmed at that point. Mm. I suppose I'm interested in because um, I imagine a lot of people, although I hear what you're saying, I imagine a lot of people own that they lack willpower or they're self-destructive. You know, emotionally, they think they are those things because they haven't seen your method or you know these different ways of looking at it. Well, that's right. And that's really too bad. I mean, uh, people with addictions tend to feel bad about themselves and uh, there's it, it no reason to feel any more bad about yourself if you have an addiction than if you have, for example, another compulsive behavior. I mean, they're all the same. So if instead of eating a lot or drinking a lot, if, if when you were feeling overwhelmed, you, uh, you, know, you, you doodled and you had a doodling compulsion, how bad would you have to feel? I mean, mm-hmm. you'd use up some paper, but that would be about it, you know? And addictions just have gotten a very bad name because, and people think badly of themselves, but it's just because they don't understand it. Mm. So, so, so I suppose, obviously, getting help is, is a big part of the process of trying to overcome addictions. But what are some things, some tips that you can give for the people who are listening out there right now and how to learn, you know, those, those crucial moments along the way, you know, that, that helplessness, that rage. And, and, and it, it does it come down to having, actually having pre-planned methods for different alternatives that give you a sense of um, choice in those hard moments? Well, I think what, what I often suggest to my patients is since you want to, since the key to point is never when you're, you're actually doing the addictive act, and I'm stressing that because almost always, if people have, let's say it's a food addiction, 
they talk a lot about what they eat, and then they talk about how the, the effects on them and their and their weight and all the terrible problems. And you know, I understand that, but it's not at all useful for dealing with the problem. You really <laughs> want to look backwards in time. Okay. So what you want to do is let's stay with eating. The chances are that even if you have an eating compulsion or an eating addiction, same thing, um, that you don't feel like eating a lot all the time, that there are times when you feel it more and times when you feel it less. So if that's the case, what I suggest to my patients is notice when you feel like, let's say it's eating, notice when you feel like eating and then look backwards. What just happened? What happened in your life? What happened in your thoughts? What happened in your feelings? What was it that led that happened just before you had the thought of eating? Mm. And if you do that enough, after a while, you'll notice a pattern. Maybe not the first time, because every circumstance will be a little different. But pretty soon, you'll see the theme. And uh, there's lots of examples in, in my book in which you can see the theme, and it's different for every person. But, for example, um, the, uh, the woman who figured out that she could order Chinese food she was a very meek person. She was too meek. She was too submissive. There were roots of that in her past. But even before she worked that out, she could see that she was constantly being in situations and truthfully putting herself in situations where she would have to be submissive. So she learned that that was the sort of thing that put her at risk of doing her addictive behavior. So having learned it, she could now uh, see it coming and even if she didn't see it coming, she would she could stop for a moment and think, do the process she had already trained herself to do. What just happened? She could figure it out. And like with the Chinese food, it only took a moment. Once she realized why she was taking the pills at that moment, she could say, oh, of course, I just agreed to make a dinner that I would I hate to do. Well, how can I solve that problem? How do I do I have to be helpless? Well, no, I don't have to be helpless. I'll have it brought in. Mm. So there's always a solution. And it turns out that once you realize what the issue is, that always leads to the addictive urge, it, it, it's relatively easy to come up with practical solutions. And the, the reason, by the way, it's so easy is because the addiction itself is, is the complicated part. It's a substitution. If you just did the obvious direct thing, you wouldn't need the addiction. The man on the street corner, for example, I mean, he had reasons for not leaving, but he could have left. If he had left, no alcoholism at that that day. So I give a lot of examples in, in the book. Of course, some of the situations are a little tougher to deal with than others. Um, I mean, not it's not you can't just leave every situation and you can't order Chinese food for every situation. But every situation does have a way of thinking about it. And that's why I have all the examples uh, that I put in. Um, and once you you know yourself well enough, you can anticipate when you will have an addictive urge hours, days, even months in advance. I have a patient that I'm seeing now who does something that um, is the sort of thing that she, she knows every time she does it, she drinks. And it's two months away. Well, we can already start working on it. You know, We can start thinking about what are the alternatives for her so she's not overwhelmed at the time. And also, so she can change what she actually does, change the situation. Before she so that she's not she doesn't get uh, overwhelmed. Does, does it um you know like so you're saying that really the best thing well one of the things we really need to focus on early on is is to learn some awareness around that moment where you feel helplessness and what creates it so then you can try to figure out other ways to approach that. 
how long does it often take for people to kind of gain that skill? Is that something that just varies on the person, or or do you find that I've, you know, it, it it's quite common with most people? Um, I think it varies a lot. Uh, it doesn't. It isn't so much the the skill part that's hard because it's not that hard to notice the theme. People usually can notice it pretty well, and if they can't, you know, you can always get in talk to a good therapist, and usually the theme becomes pretty pretty clear pretty quickly. Mm. It is harder for some people than for others to uh, to do something about it, but that doesn't depend. That isn't really a, about the addiction. That's about the person. And for example, some people the issue is so deep and hard to deal with that what they really need is to have a good psychotherapy to work that out before they can get better control. Yeah. In, in, in my experience, almost everybody gets better relatively quickly to work it out entirely. Usually that goes hand in hand with figuring out, you know, what makes you tick inside. Mm-hmm. With, with regards to, um, um, so, so, Oh, you've got you, 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 such a good answer. I'm kind of falling off my wagon. So, so then figuring that out. Any other tips that you would give? Oh well, I, I think that's probably uh, the main one. I guess I would also want to say something about uh, two things. I guess one is since addictions can shift to other compulsive behaviors, which we don't call addictions. I would I would also notice if any of those occur. Um, I think I, I, I sort of alluded to this. I, a woman I was seeing who had a, a completely different addiction, which she had stopped, one day came in to see me and she said, well, I don't do that anymore. She said, but I'm going crazy. And I said, why do you say that? And she said, because I'm cleaning my house with a Q-tip. That was a woman I was thinking of when I mentioned <laughs> yeah. it before. So, well, it sounds crazy to cute, you know, clean your house so thoroughly. But we both recognized almost immediately that this was just another displacement, another substitute. Now, it was a healthier one than her previous addiction, but it was still the same thing, and we could still use it to understand what was going on, and she could understand it. You know, one of the problems in 2013 and for the last two decades is uh, people in uh, my field, unfortunately, tend to give everyone 12 diagnoses. You know, so, you know, you have depression, you have anxiety, you have an eating disorder, you have... uh, you know, uh, three other, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's insane. It's, it's all because of the way psychiatrists tend to divide everything up into symptoms and call everyone a, a diagnosis, but that's, that's just silly. You're only one person. So what really is happening is that there's something that bothers you and it creates symptoms. It'll make you depressed. It'll make you anxious. It'll make you have an addiction. It might make you have a phobia, but the issue is the same. You're only one person. So that can be helpful so that people don't get overwhelmed saying, you know, I'm, I, <laughs> look how sick I am. He's giving me four different diagnoses and a pill for each. So, yeah. Lots, lots I'm interested, you know, like I, I live in a world with, of exercise, you know, that's kind of my, my passion and the thing I do. And, and it's really interesting in the exercise world because we get people who are very addicted to exercise in a way that's unhealthy, you know, like, um, and, and I know in my past, I've been that person, I've been someone who's done, you know, 40 hours exercise a week for, for years. And, um, uh-huh. and, and I know there was a little bit of that was about chasing my inner demons and, and I'm in a place now where I, you know, I don't need exercise. I'm quite, I love it and I love it in my life, but it's not a need so much, but it's, right. it's, it's funny in our world because no one really frowns upon the, the addictive behavior. If anything, it's encouraged. If anything, you're, yes, you're right. You know, you know, like if anything, you're you're kind of put on a platform because you're so strong at this area of life that everyone else is so weak at. But right. I, I do see people in my industry and even people who are clients who um, 
are actually really unhealthy with their exercise. And but because it's in, in, in the area of exercise, it's not you know, like if it was drugs, you'd bring it up. But because it's exercise, it's almost left un- alone. What would be your thoughts on that? Well, I I, I agree with that, and um, I'm glad that no one uh, looks down on you because you exercise a lot. But uh, they should have exactly the same attitude toward people who drink a lot or take drugs a lot, because uh, it's it's all the same. No, I think that's right, and I also think that the way you said it is exactly right. If you do it because if you really are doing it as a, as a pleasurable choice or because you think it's a good idea, that's fine. If you do it because you need to do it, then then it's a symptom and it needs to be looked into why you have to do it that way. Mm. And of course, to confuse matters, sometimes things are both, like exercise. I mean, it's a good idea to exercise, but if you're also doing it as a symptom, then what will happen is when you finally work it out, hopefully, um, is you'll return to doing what you did. You'll exercise only to the extent that it actually makes sense, not because you're solving an inner problem. Mm, mm. It's just really common in my industry. What's really interesting is you'll see people, like they'll, they'll, when they're injured, they can't stop or they can never have a rest day or you know they just emotionally can't let that happen because it's all those symptoms you talk about are obviously happening. Right, right. Mm. And if they, if they stopped, if, if, if something prevented them from exercising, then they might become anxious or, or upset, um, which, uh, you know, no, no one wants, but it might help them to see what it is that's really bothering them and driving this behavior. Yeah. Well, the other funny thing about our industry as well is you get a lot of esteem from praise from others. So, you know, you're almost encouraged to go more towards that behavior. Right. You know, like, you know, suddenly people put you on a pedestal because they think you, you know, you get called this, you know, you can Exercise for most people is such a hard thing to do in life. So then right. if you become good at that thing, everyone goes, oh my God, you're amazing. And, and it pushes people more towards the addictive behavior without actually dealing with their problems. Well, uh, you know, I think that's true. But but I would still say that the, the main impetus is inside. Because mm. if you don't have the inside piece, the, the, the psychology to do it, then, you know, we all get praised for exercising, but not all of us use that praise to uh, uh, that that doesn't push us over the edge to exercising compulsively mm, mm. um any just anything else you'd like to add Lance? like you know i really appreciate any time you've got but just anything else you'd like to add um well i think we covered a lot of it um uh i uh i, I guess i would encourage people if they you know if in thinking this through they decide they want to see somebody and i'm going to say something very strange and some people will be mad at me for this, but I would say, I don't know how it is in New Zealand, but here in the United States, if, I would discourage people from going to someone called an addiction specialist. Oh, really? The reason for that is not that these are bad or evil people, but they mostly take on take the traditional view that addiction is sort of a separate kind of phenomenon, which you have to treat by going to an addiction person who usually is not well-trained in psychology but is mostly going to either uh, encourage you or uh, give you kind of uh, a life coaching experience, or maybe they'll try to treat you with some, um, you know, they'll try to have some sort of biological approach to it to give you a pill or something. And most of the people in, in this field, at least in, in the U.S., um, are kind of anti-psychological in that way. They, or they believe in this chronic brain disease nonsense which doesn't lead, lead to any treatment at all, incidentally, because it's chronic and you can't do anything about it. Mm. Fortunately, it's not true. But, you know, what I would do 
instead of that, and what I'm always, people are always calling me to say, who should I go see? I, I would find the best therapist you can find, the person who's the most steeped in understanding human psychology. Forget about the addiction piece, because you can learn the addiction piece. I mean, what I just told you about, not only is it in two books, but I've written a number of academic papers. People can read them. Um, it's not tough to understand this, but to go in the other direction is very hard. If you are just sort of a, you know, a recovering addict or something like that, and you have no training in psychology, you can't become a psychologist by reading a couple of papers, but you can learn about the psychology of addiction once you already are a psychologist. Mm. So I would just go for the best person you can get somebody who's, you know, going to try to understand what we call psychodynamically, try to understand what makes you tick inside. It's, do you have much of a battle with philosophies? You know, obviously there are different philosophies out there. You know, like, is that much of a battle in between, you know, this world that you live in? Uh, there's quite a bit of battling. Um, and some of it is unnecessary. Uh, I, I, I don't like the chronic brain disease people because it's, it's actually destructive. I mean, it, it, it points people in the wrong direction and it has, it's not helpful at all. And it's just wrongheaded. But the people, for example, who are 12 step folks of which there are a very large number, um, there's no real reason to battle 12 step programs have extremely limited success statistically, but that doesn't mean they're they're worthless. They're, they're very good for the people for whom they're very good, but it's a very small percentage of the population. Mm. And, uh, um, what, uh, uh, what I've always suggested to people is that if they are getting something out of a 12 step program, by all means, stay in it because you're one of that group. Uh, but the bad side of the 12 step programs is that if you're told that that's the only way, or if you don't do this, then you'll never get well, well, that's just wrong and, and hurtful. Mm. And you know, unfortunately, there are people who say that, you know, it's our way or the, or the highway. Or if you, if, you, if, you, if you don't like going to AA, then there's something wrong with you. It's your problem, not ours. Mm. Uh, that's just destructive. Mm. What kind of success rate do you have, Lance? Like- well, it's, you know, sometimes people ask me that. I'm in private practice. And so I have a biased population. So I have a very high success rate. But to be perfectly fair, I'm seeing people who are in a position to see a private therapist and so forth. I have, however, worked in um, homeless clinics and I've worked in general population clinics. Um, and um, those people do quite well also. So um, I, 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 you know, as a single practitioner, I, I don't have, I can't give you a statistical number, but I can tell you that people, since I've had the chance to talk all around the country here um, and in Canada, uh, I, uh, I hear from a lot of therapists who've either read my uh, books or papers or they've heard me talk and they, they tell me how helpful it is with their patients. So I think it does pretty well. Mm. Just, just lastly, um, how rewarding is it for you? What's it like when you actually take someone through that process and they remove that addiction from their life? First of all, what do you see in the person, and then how is that rewarding for you? Well, people, uh, people are always they always feel a million times better once they stop any addictive behavior. Certainly, if it's a physical addict, something that can make you physically ill, like alcohol, they feel better. But uh, even something like food. I mean, we all know how terrible you can feel when you overeat. Mm. So everyone feels better. And then they tend, especially with food, uh, they tend to uh, uh, get better physically and that makes them feel better. So there are all these wonderful side effects of stopping the behavior. 
uh, but they feel better about themselves too. People mm. feel better about the fact that they are now in control of their lives. Uh, and, uh, that makes a difference. Mm. And, you know, it's wonderful to, from my standpoint, it's wonderful to see. Uh, mm. I should add though, just, you know, for the sake of completeness, there are people that I've seen who have continued their addictive behavior and I still see them. I don't throw anybody out of treatment because they're still doing it. And that, cause I think that would be insane. Uh, just because they have a symptom that they haven't gotten into control yet doesn't mean they should stop the therapy. And and there are some people, unfortunately quite a few, who even take that further and they say, I won't treat you at all until you stop the, the symptom. Oh, really? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's counterproductive. Truly, it certainly is. And it's it's true more in, in a, something like alcoholism than than other things. But there are definitely people out there who will say, I don't treat alcoholics go somewhere, see somewhere, do something, stop drinking, and then I'll see you. Mm. And I think that's that's insane. <laughs> that sounded a bit insane, that one. Hey, Lance, um, just thank you so much for your time today. We really, really appreciate it. Um, I know a lot of my listeners will be had their ears perked up as they listen to today's interview. And, and uh, the names of the books are, what's the first name of the first book? The first book is called uh, The Heart of Addiction. It's published by HarperCollins. It, it's, uh, they're both available in paperback now. Yep. And the, and the one that came out just two years ago is called Breaking Addiction. It, its full title is actually Breaking Addiction, a seven-step handbook to stopping, to ending any addiction. Yeah, admittedly, I, I haven't read the first one, but I, I actually got the second one as an audio book and, and I just couldn't, you know, I think I listened to it in a day and then I listened to it again. It's, guys, I really recommend it. If, if you're listening to today's interview and you just kind of think, you know, if you just kind of hit a few chords with you, you know, there may be some stuff you need to work with in yourself and, and there may be further steps that you need to do, but a good start is to really get hold of Lance's books and uh, I'll have a link to those on my website so you, you can go there and get them from there, but get onto them. And even if you just have people in your life who you know struggle with addiction you know the nice thing that Lance does very well is he puts it in language that makes sense and you know and you know even as you listen to Lance today he's just very good at making you know you kind of listen to this and you go yeah I get this and uh you know and, and there'll be work to be done but you know the first step is obviously a really good step would to get hard hold Lance's books is there any other ways that do you do Skype work or do you or is it only you just practice stuff well, uh, actually, I, I I would have done Skype therapy, but I it's in this country it's not legal to do it outside of my state where I'm licensed, so oh, okay. it limits me. Okay. Uh, I actually don't know what the rules are for overseas, but but I know that that's the rule in the states. Well, you might get a few emails from a few listeners. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, Lance, thank you so much for your time, and you're doing very important work, and, and it's great to see you out there doing it. And uh, good luck for what you're doing, and uh, maybe we'll talk again sometime in the future. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. Bye awesome. bye. Thanks, mate. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Lance. It was a um, pretty insightful kind of uh, knowledge that he shared with us. It was really interesting. I remember when I put out this podcast, and this came out a while ago, and I remember when I put it out, I just got so much feedback from the listeners of the show just saying how it really made them help kind of figure some stuff out. And it is, it is interesting. I know that we talked about that exercise aspect, and you know, it's definitely something that we probably all need to think about, people who have that addiction to exercise in a way that may be hiding a deeper thing that they need to address. And so, you know, if, if you did kind of get some, you know, if that did hit a note with you, you know, feel free to check out his books and I'll put a link to it on www.imtalk.me so you can go there and download the book from there. 
Uh, the next interview I'm going to put on is with Carol Dweck, but before we do, I'm just going to talk about, um, who am I going to talk about next? I'm going to talk about Extreme Endurance, and Extreme Endurance is your lactic buffer, and I'm just going to put up their website right now, xendurance.com, and uh, these guys, it's been really interesting watching their progress. Like, I think when they first started sponsoring I Am Talk, oh, they're going to put an automatic ad on. Um, <clears throat> when they first started sponsoring I Am Talk, it was a pretty small business that was just kind of starting out. And they've just gone from strength to strength, you know. They've hit the triathlon market with huge success. And now they've really moved into the CrossFit world. And, you know, I suppose at the end of the day, the reason that it's going so successfully is because the product works. You know, these products you know, the word of mouth for them, if they're not the word of mouth, no good, well, people aren't going to really buy it, and so, you know, Timo Brach's on it, you know, lots of triathletes are on it, and they seem to, you know, we get lots of good feedback about it, so if you are looking for that little bit of edge in your training, you know, just that little bit extra, it's going to help take your training to that next level, um, check it out, you know, Extreme Endurance, they've got many products you can try, but the traditional one is Extreme Endurance, and, uh, you know, check it out, give it a try, and you could maybe buy one of the little small packs where you could give it a try for a period of time, and, if it doesn't work for you, so be it. But, you know, from the evidence that we've had from lots of you guys is that it seems to be a pretty good kind of tool to help you recover from your hard training, which makes you perform better the next day. So check out X Endurance, guys, and uh, I think we've got a discount code. I'm not quite sure. Go to www.imtalk.me to find the discount code. Anyway, um, I'm going to put Carol Dweck on now. So once again, Carol Dweck is one of the world's leading um, psychologist really and uh, she's done amazing work around the uh, concept of mindset and instead of me talking about how it works I'm going to put on the interview of Carol right now. Right guys well I'm really really excited to get uh, the next guest on today's show. Uh, her name is Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck is a uh, one of the world's leading psychologists in the field of psychology, at least. She's um, taught at Columbia, at Harvard, and she's currently working at Stanford University in America. Um, and, and one piece of work that really, you know, if you ever read any book on behavior psychology or, you know, kind of growth kind of books, there's a, what, her name comes up all the time. Like the amount of times I've heard her name is just mind blows, blows my mind. And it's a, her, my, her book is called Mindset. And uh, I'll put a link to it on this week's show notes so you guys can actually go and get it yourself because it's, highly recommend her book and uh, she's really really put some great work out there that's influenced a lot of people in her field so welcome along to the show today Carol. Thank you it's a pleasure to be here. I suppose we let, let's start from where you started from you know let, you want to give us a little bit of a history around um, your, your career and what got you into this area of mindset. I've always been fascinated by how people cope with the challenges um, whether they get discouraged and crumble or whether they get energized mm. by their setbacks, by obstacles. And so that, that's really been my life's work. Um, after studying these different reactions to challenges and setbacks, I discovered these mindsets, these beliefs that people have that are at the heart of whether they get discouraged by failure or whether they get energized by it. Mm. So what we found is that some people have a fixed mindset. They think their talents and abilities are just these fixed traits. You have a certain amount and that's that. These are the people who get discouraged by setbacks because they think the setbacks measure them and tell them they don't have it. They can't do it. 
But other people have a growth mindset. They think their abilities can be developed over time through perseverance, hard work, and learning from mistakes. So they expect that when they're doing something really hard, they're going to make mistakes, they're going to have setbacks, and they ask themselves, what can I learn from this? How can I be better at this going forward? Mm. So it's almost like the mindset theory kind of says um, that the, the fixed mindset kind of thinks that I am just this way and there's nothing I can do about it. And, yes. and I'm stuck in that for life. Whereas the growth mindset says mm-hmm. every opportunity is a chance for me to grow and you know I will use that opportunity to develop myself. Yes. And so it's kind of like a philosophical way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, do you see human beings as a bundle of these fixed traits? Yeah. You're a certain kind of person or you're not. You were meant to be this or you weren't. Or do you see us all as full of potential? We ha- may not have the same starting point as someone else. Maybe something is harder for us, more of a struggle than it is for someone else. But we can still become better and better at it over time. Can I ask, can I ask Carol, um, what are some of the, the downsides, you know, when we're in a fixed mindset, so, you know, for the person who just feels I was born this way and that's how the world's going to work for me, what are some of the effects of that both positive, if there are any positive, or, or what are some of the things that hold you back about being that person? When you're in a fixed mindset, <clears throat> excuse me, that's okay. you, judge, <laughs> you, you judge yourself. Uh, okay. You're always judging yourself. Am I this kind of person or that kind of person? Do I have this much ability or that kind of that much ability? Um, am I going to succeed at this fit, fitness regime or fail? It's always like one way or the other. Okay. That's a real downside. Another downside is that you might put a moral value on it. I'm a good person if I stick to my diet or stick to my exercise regime. And I'm a bad person if I don't. Mm. Research has shown that when you think in these terms, a setback is going to demoralize you. When you feel like a bad person, it doesn't motivate you to be to 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 improve or to pursue what you're pursuing. It means, oh, I'm a bad person. I'm a kind of person who binges. I'm a kind of person who doesn't adhere to an exercise regime. So that fixed mindset where you're always judging yourself and putting yourself in a category can be very, very self-defeating. So, 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 so I've got a fixed mindset. I, I start to identify with things as in it's just me, I'm, I'm a bad person. You know, it's interesting, I hear, see a lot with fitness where you hear people, like I had one client who would call herself a fat whore, um, you know, if she wasn't in control of her diet. And it was a self-identification of that I can never overcome these things. And so what are some of the effects of that person? What, what's the flow-on effect of having those thoughts? Yeah, it, it just... Having those thoughts plunges you more deeply into the abyss uh, that you're stuck in. Um, For example, I got an email um, from someone who had read my book, and she said she was diabetic. She had just had a giant piece of pie for lunch, 
And she didn't want to take her blood sugar because she thought the blood sugar would tell her she was a bad person. Oh, really? <laughs> so she would have ended up in the hospital wow. rather than feeling like a bad person. Instead, she said, let me think in a growth mindset like that book I'm reading. Yeah. She took her blood sugar. It was high. She took her insulin and dealt with the situation. Wow. Can I, can I ask, is this something, you know, like, is it, is it, is it nurture, nature versus nurture thing? Is this something, is the mindsets that we've got, is it something that's been developed by our influences or is it just the way we've been, our personality traits? Um, where do we find the, the, the different mindsets come from? We've shown that the different mindsets can be powerfully influenced by the messages we hear in the environment. Really? Yes. A lot of fitness programs will talk about you're a good person or a bad person or, you know, or at least suggest mm. that kind of thing. We've also shown that the way you praise people can put them into a fixed or growth mindset. When we tell people they're smart, they're talented, or they're good at something, it makes them fragile. It backfires. You know, the world thinks that's how you give people confidence, but our research shows that praising people's abilities, telling them they're good at something, puts them in a fixed mindset. And the next time they fail, they think, I guess I'm not good at this. Mm-hmm. So then, they uh, also, yeah, yeah, sorry, keep going. They also don't want to take on hard things or challenges because they're afraid of showing they're not this kind of person. Uh, yeah, so so when people have praised them, they've gone, oh, you know, you're you're talented, or you you um, you know, you're a really fit person, but they haven't really maybe praised the effort. Yes, we have shown that when you praise the process that uh-huh. people engage in. It really is helpful. It puts them into more of a growth mindset and it tells them what they have to do to succeed, what they have to do to overcome failure. So praising the strategies people have used, the effort they've put in, the focus that they've been able to maintain, even praising taking on the challenge. Um, Then people feel, okay, there's a process I engage in. And that's how I'm going to be successful. So if you have a setback, then you don't think, oh, I'm not a talented person or I'm not a good person. You think, all right, I'm human. What can I learn from that? What are the circumstances under which I'm vulnerable? Mm -hmm. Uh, So therefore... Maybe I should exercise at this time of day, not that time of day. Maybe I have to take these precautions to protect that time. Maybe I have to do this. Maybe I have to do that. So a setback is informative Mm -hmm. about what you should do differently going forward. It's not informative about the kind of person you are. Mm -hmm. And another thing is that in a growth mindset, you understand It's always going to be hard. You're always going to have to put in the effort. In a a fixed mindset, you may fool yourself. I'm the kind of person this comes easily to. Mm -hmm. A lifetime of 
fitness and healthy eating is a lifetime of discipline. Yeah, it is. And you it? have yeah. to <laughs> and you have to expect that it's not always going to be easy and that's just part of how it is. It is interesting, isn't it? You know, like someone who, you know, has experienced success in fitness, um, you know, that that when people look at you from the outside, they assume that it's come easy to you. And and I think, yes. you know, like I get, you know, people go, oh, it's kind of, you know, they, they think that because I'm someone who's kind of been fit and achieved success within fitness, that it's something that's been easy to me. Now, because I've enjoyed it, you can kind of look at it and go, well, I enjoy it. And so in some ways it's easy, but the work I've put in has actually been pretty high standard. You know, like the amount of energy yes. I've put into to this success has actually been yes. quite high level. Yes, and I've exercised every day for 40 years. Yeah. I don't always like it. I don't always have time for it. But you you have to kind of understand how to make it work for you and how to put in the effort even when you don't want to. It's really interesting. In your book, you talk about um, how in, in society we seem to value, I think you're talking about Gabriel's point about how in society we um, – you know, we seem to value the person who does it carelessly, you know, or the person who seems naturally talented. It's almost like we value that more than the, than recognizing that actually the growth mindset is the thing we should be all aiming for. Exactly. Um, when we look at someone who's tremendously successful, whether it's an athlete, a musician, a scientist, we think it came to them naturally because we just see the end product. Mm. We just see how they're producing and performing. But I have my students at Stanford every year. I have them um, delve deeply into the lives of someone they admire. Oh, really? It has never been the case that the person was a natural. Really? It's it has pretty. always been the case that that person, you know, maybe they were talented, but they put in tremendous amounts of effort over long periods of time, they learned discipline. It's almost never the case that the person you see doing something effortlessly started by doing it effortlessly. It's, it's, it, that's actually kind of a good life project for anybody to do, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, like I just, as you said that, I said, well, what a great project, you know, to actually think, you know, because we do do that. There is that thing, you know, there's a sportsman in New Zealand right now called Sonny Bill Williams, who's just a very amazing sportsman. And uh, he seems to transition from one sport to the next and he just seems to win everything. And, and I think people just think he has that natural talent. But I'm sure if we got an opportunity to talk to him, you'd see the amount of effort he puts into this, yes. play, you know, and and it, it is easy to sit on the outside and go, oh, this person was just gifted. Um, yes. You know, and whereas... Nobody. Yeah, yeah, nobody can waltz from one sport to another and be at the top yeah. without tremendous commitment and effort. Yeah. Well, yeah, I really love that idea. So I suppose there's some questions. So, so as we go take a step back and we talk about, you know, we the fixed mindset can come from our environments. Do we find that then, that, you know, if we think about self-talk and the way we communicate within ourselves, does that then instill that kind of fixed mindset? And do you find that those people who do have the fixed mindset, that's how they communicate to themselves as well? Everybody has self-talk. Um, a fixed and growth mindset have different self-talk. Mm. In a fixed mindset, if you, have a, if you have a setback, you think, maybe I'm no good at this. Maybe I'm not meant to be this. Maybe I'm not that kind of person. 
um, when you see someone who's better than you at something, maybe they have it and I don't, you become demoralized by that rather than inspired or energized. Mm -hmm. In a growth mindset, your self-talk is very different. It's not about, can I do this? What kind of person I am? It's, how can I do this? Mm -hmm. How can I develop the skills, the discipline, the habits that will serve me well? When you have a setback, instead of beating yourself up, you say, as I said before, I'm human. Setbacks are inevitable. This is a really hard project. What can I learn from this setback mm -hmm. that will help me going forward? When you see someone who's um, way ahead of you in something or who is um, the person you'd ideally like to be, you don't say, oh, that's a different kind of person. I, I, I feel discouraged by even their very existence. Instead, you say, all right, how do they do it? What can I learn from them? Instead of thinking they're naturally talented, think, hey, they're a struggling person like me. Maybe I can pick, some, pick up some tips mm -hmm. about how to go forward more successfully. So, so I suppose, Carol, if we, if, you know, for the person listening to this, you know, and I, and I think you're very clear at the kind of message you're putting out there. You're, you're very good at communicating that. But how do I know that I am a fixed person? And I suppose that the other question I have really is, do you find that people are fixed in one area and growth in other areas of your life? And, and how do you identify the difference between the two? Yes, people can be fixed in some areas of their lives and have a growth mindset in other areas. You can think, well... My athletic ability can grow, but my maths ability, that's fixed or vice versa. Mm. Um, or you can think um, um, some people have natural discipline and you have it or you don't versus people can develop mm -hmm. discipline. Mm -hmm. So it can be very much different in different areas. And also, I'm talking as though you're always in a given area, you're always in one mindset or the other, but we can slide along that continuum yeah. depending on the circumstances. It's funny. I play, I play piano, Carol, and um, piano is the one, the one area in my life that I'm not that competent in. Well, not one as many years I'm not that competent, but it's one area I put a lot of effort into and I'm not that competent. And, um, and it's, I find, you know, in the areas like fitness where I am, you know, very growth mindset, um, I never really experienced, you know, the fixed mindset at all. But then when I'm playing piano, I do have those moments where it's about me as a personality. And I've really got to f see those moments within myself and break it back to the process of yes. what's, you know, like, it's, yes. a, it's really important. I think that, you know, for you guys listening to this is that how do people figure out um, that they're, they're in that, what those triggers for themselves? Yes, yes. So it is really important to monitor your self-talk and your thinking um, so that you understand when you're falling into a fixed mindset, I can't do this, I'm no good at this, I'm not that kind of person. Listen to it. Mm. Don't block it out. Just listen to what it's saying and recognize you've fallen into a fixed mindset. Then talk back with a growth mindset. I'm a learner. I love piano. I'm a learner. I'm going to commit myself to practicing. I'm going to become better at it over time. Mm -hmm. Well, in regards to um, it being changed, 
it obviously can, but, you know, like if I've been, if I'm 30-something or if I've been, you know, living on this earth for a long time and I've had this fixed mindset and it's installed in me, how hard it is, is it to shift from that to the growth? You know, it can take a fair amount of work. For some people, for some people, it's quick. They say, I get it. And and they really do. And I'm going to think this way. And I recognize. But for other people, where that fixed mindset may be deeply ingrained, mm. you have to start slowly. And I think the first step is just hearing that fixed mindset voice in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about I'm this kind of person, I'm not that kind of person. Thinking when... There are setbacks. I'm no good at this. I'm not a good person. I'm not a disciplined person. I'm not a smart person. Just listen to it. Don't even do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But for a week, just hear that voice. Get in touch with it. And then start talking back with a growth mindset. Uh, Just a good trick, I think, of as you're talking about this, you know, you've talked really about identifying your triggers, haven't you? And so... Um, you know, one thing you can guys can think of is, you know, if you start to understand wh- where those triggers are, if I'm a fixed mindset person, then you can almost pre-plan as you kind of discover those, a different route of thinking to put in place at that time, couldn't you, Carol? Yes, yes. Figure out what the triggers are, when you're likely to have setbacks, and then hear that fixed mindset voice, talk back to it with the growth mindset voice. So so an example of this that we could think of in, let's say, diet, you know, you're eating too much on a Friday night, you go to that emotional place where, you know what, I suck, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a bad person, and you, really, you learn that, and then the next Friday night you might maybe eat too much, but you've planned to go, okay, actually, where did I make the mistake in eating too much? Okay, I probably didn't have enough at lunchtime, so I was hungry when I got home. Yes. Yeah, okay. And then so the next week I need to make sure I have a good lunch and have a healthy snack when I get home. Exactly. Yeah. You learn from that setback. Mm-hmm. Here are my vulnerabilities. If I don't eat enough at lunch, I eat more at dinner. Or... Um, Maybe you need to eat some veg. You know that this place, the bar you go to, has all these fried and starchy foods. Maybe mm. you need to have something healthy beforehand so you're less vulnerable. So, you, Or maybe you need to see if they have some vegetables that they can put out. But in other words, you anticipate what's going to happen, mm. what your vulnerabilities are, and you plan for them or maybe you will say Friday night I'm going to eat a little too much but other days I'm not yeah great and so by doing that you're removing that fixed mindset and that emotional kind of pain that comes with the fixed mindset yes yeah and and the the cycle of vulnerability where you have transgressed and now you're a bad person. Now you're going to eat more. And yeah, or yeah. It keeps you down that bad path, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That cycle of shame. Yeah, great way of putting it. Has to be curtailed. Do you know, it's funny. I, I'm, very, I'm very lucky. Just my mindset has been growth for a long time. And, and also I seem to have a very optimistic kind of outlook on the life. And, and I often think, you know, some people who live in that fixed mindset and they emotionally beat themselves up all the time, it just must be a really hard life. Yes. Yes. Um, 
it's a life that has a lot of shame in it because mm-hmm. when failure says you're a bad person, then you get into this place of shame. Mm. And that place of shame does not promote repair. Mm. It promotes more bad habits or sinking into these bad habits. Carol, mm. mm. Carol, can I ask, because, you know, obviously you've had a pretty big impact on, on your own kind of world and, and the world that you don't even see. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, we, you've seen the transformation of people who have shifted from... Um, the fixed to the growth and and maybe share some experiences of how that liberates people and what then the next path for them forward is? Yes. Um, I do get letters from people who have um, embraced a growth mindset and have um, tried for things in their lives that they've never tried for before. Mm-hmm. Like they were always afraid to try to be a writer because what if they failed? Their dream would be shattered and now they go for it. Mm-hmm. I got a letter recently from a 13-year-old boy wow. who said, I read your book um, and I, I'm very glad it was based on science. That's why I decided to try to put it into practice. He said <laughs> he put into practice in his relationship with his parents in his relationship with his peers in school and his schoolwork. And he saw improvement in all three areas. And he said, I realize now I've wasted a lot of my life. <laughs> really? Yeah, he's a 13-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> you got plenty of time, mate. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of coaches have put growth mindset into practice with their teams and are finding a lot of success. Um, But most of all, people say that it empowers them, well, not just to try new things, but not to go to that place of shame Mm. when they've had setbacks, but rather to say, okay, what can I learn from this and what can I do differently going forward? It's interesting, isn't it? You know, like if you think of the two mindsets, you know, we think about um, the fix. It's very much a limiting mindset, isn't it? Whereas when you go to the growth, it's it's very much an opportunistic kind of mindset, isn't it? You you suddenly start to see the world as this big sponge of opportunities to develop yourself, don't you? Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, so many things open up because um, you're, you're always asking how can I do this yeah. rather than can I, can't I, will I look foolish? Will I confirm the lack of ability? Will people, will I expose myself as an imposter? Should I not even try um, because I might feel like a failure? Instead, you're saying, what do I value? Mm, yeah. What's the kind of person I want to be for myself and for people around me? And what are the steps, even baby steps I can take to start moving toward that person I want to be? Yeah, I I think that's a really important message here because it's interesting. I I always think I get frustrated with the message of, you know, if you believe in yourself, you can achieve anything. And I think that's a very limited kind of message because belief really comes from experience of growth doesn't it you know like it's it, belief is when i've experienced some growth and i go wow I've, I've got this far maybe i can go a little bit further and um and you know 
when you have a fixed mindset, you you know, you're in this place where you never actually experience growth. So why would you believe in yourself? Whereas yeah. if you start to move towards, you know, the growth mindset and you, you know, you take the right steps and, you know, and you do achievable goals or achievable steps forward, then you actually, the belief is real because you've had experience of yes. growth. Yes. It's a different belief in self. In a fixed mindset, that belief in self is a seesaw mm. that, you know, you say, one day you say, I'm strong, I'm capable. Then you have a setback and you're weak and incapable. So it's not that you never believe in yourself. While you're being successful, you'll, you'll think, yeah, it's fixed, but I have it. Yeah. I'm a good person. I'm a strong person. But as soon as you hit failure, crash. You're not that person anymore. Mm. In a growth mindset, you believe that you're a person who can improve and learn. You don't have to believe you're already this fabulous, brilliant, disciplined <laughs> person. You only have to believe that you can improve. Yeah, yeah. And you just have to have the patience to improve, maybe slowly over time, but you'll get there. So, so, okay, so two questions, Carol. First of all, for the person who's listened to this who's really self-identifying with the fact that they are fixed mindset, what would be a good plan forward for them? Obviously, getting your book, I think, is one of the best things you could probably do. Yes, read, read, excellent plan. Read the book. And you've also got uh, the program I looked at um, for education as well. So what, what's the story of that? That's um, an online interactive program for adolescents. It teaches them a growth mindset about their intelligence. Yep. The idea that the brain grows stronger and stronger connections when you do things and stick to them and learn. Um, so it it is it's a it's a it's a, a fun, interactive, colorful, humorous program uh, that. Um, if parents or teachers are interested in looking at it for their uh, kids, they can go to Brainology, www.brainology.us. Okay, I'll put that on our website, on my website as well, if you guys want to go there, brainology.us. And, it, and, it's, and it's, I looked at it, it's kind of like a program, it's, it's, about, it's really kind of teaching kids how to, yes. uh, to get the growth mindset really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm, mm. And so, um, so, so fixed mindset people obviously getting your book's going to be a good part. And then, and then about is it about consciously creating a plan to shift towards the growth? Yes, it is about consciously creating a plan. And research has shown that a growth mindset really has tangible benefits. For example, when uh, students learn a growth mindset about their intelligence, their grades go up, their motivation can be transformed, their grades and achievement go up. Really? Um, research has shown that when people have more of a growth mindset about weight and weight control, they're not as thrown off by setbacks. Really? Wow. They're, so they'll stick to their uh, weight loss regime better. Um, in, in almost all areas of life, a growth mindset has benefits, but you have to consciously pursue it, especially if um, you're prone to falling into a fixed mindset. Now, in my book, 
I'm very clear that I had a fixed mindset. Oh, so you are the person who's come from one world to the next. I am a person who has come from one world to the next. And um, very consciously because of my work. And still, you know, sometimes if I have a real setback, I still feel that fixed mindset feeling in the pit of my stomach. Mm. Ooh. I don't say, wow, I love a failure. I love a setback. (laughs) Um, But I consciously am committed to a growth mindset. And I do learn from those experiences. And guess what? You look back and you see things that at the time you thought were failures or misfortunes and often they were the most valuable things that ever happened to you because you learned a tremendous amount mm, from them. Mm. So, yeah, and so what you're saying is that being someone who's come from the fixed mindset to growth, is that it's, it's not that it ever totally disappears, it's just that you're conscious that you need to work on it when those moments come up and then you find exactly. those to be really rewarding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose then the next question is, um, for the people who are in the growth mindset, how do we enhance it or is it just once you kind of get there you kind of know it or is it is it just about being responsible to staying in there or are there challenges to go further with it Mm -hmm. yes i think you will recognize when you start operating from a growth mindset for example i heard my thinking changing i heard myself saying this is hard this is fun oh really who said that? Because in a fixed mindset, hard things are a little bit threatening. Yeah. Can, can um, I, oh, there you go. And, Sorry. And then, yes, you have to consciously cultivate that thinking, but it becomes more and more natural over time. Can I ask, what were the effects on your esteem, you know, as you shifted, you know, you know, because as you say, you, this came from research and you obviously figured out, cheapers, I'm this person, I need to move, and then you've worked on it and, you know, you've obviously figured it out. What happened to the, the sense of self and yourself as you kind of went through that oh, journey? Oh, that's fascinating. And we've also done research on that. In a fixed mindset, you're focused on your self-esteem all the time oh, and really? you're arranging the world and arranging your head so that your self-esteem always feels high and good. So, um, you know, you use all these defensive strategies. You'll do easy things over and over to feel good. Or you'll look at someone who's worse off than you, maybe less fit or um, less. More overweight or something um, like that. Or or someone more overweight than you. You're always massaging the data to make you feel good about yourself. Wow. But in a growth mindset, um, yeah, it's not that your self-esteem doesn't take a hit when something goes badly wrong, but you repair that self-esteem by taking action Mm -hmm. to learn from your setback and taking action to do something differently in the future. So that whole self-esteem maintenance process digs you deeper into the hole in a fixed mindset, Mm -hmm. but is a cue 
in a growth mindset to do something constructive. Yeah, it's a great way of putting it, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a cue, isn't it? Then, mm-hmm. then my actions from this moment forward can determine how I get the most out of this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Carol, um, just just so your website is your website is mindset. Mindsetonline.com. Mindset online. Mindset online. So one, Mindsetonline, one word, dot com. Okay, and again, I'll put that on the show notes for this today's show. Um, I suppose just anything before we wrap up, just anything else you'd like to add that maybe the listener out there, would it be valuable to them? Yes, I would say believe in yourself, but believe in yourself in the way that says one step at a time, I can grow one step at a time. I can become better and better at what I do. And when there's a setback, think about the next steps that you're going to take. Yeah, definitely. Carol, can I also ask just how rewarding is it for you to, you know, like obviously in, you know, the, the academic world is a bit of a funny world in some ways, isn't it? You know, like mm-hmm. the kind of the, 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 the system in itself can be a little bit funny. But, you know, when you have this, this impact, because I'm sure you recognize the impact you've had um, in, in, you know, the consciousness of this area, well, you know, well, how is that rewarding for you personally? It's incredibly rewarding to feel that I have – done research and I've had these findings and I've written about them and that people have benefited. Many people say it has helped them lead the lives that they want to lead. Uh, It's, it's really hard to express how gratifying that is. Yeah. Um, You know, like I know in your book, you were talking about how, um, you know, that you come from academia and academia, there's this very much, there's a, a very narrow way of communicating and, and to be accepted, you have to stick to very strict rules and that, you know, you found writing your book was very challenging because it was very much for a general audience and trying to get your message across in a broader way, I suppose. And, um, you know, it sounded like you were very challenged by that. Yes, yes, but I was determined. So, yes, there's a formal scientific writing style and mm-hmm. I had to junk that completely and learn how to write in the way that I speak yeah. and tell stories in the way that I tell stories to my friends. Mm. Uh, it was very, very challenging, but I knew that I wanted to communicate to the world. Yeah. And so uh, I did, I did it. Well, you did a great job. Guys, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Carol. It's um, it's a real pleasure and, and, and I really, you know, I can't kind of give you enough praise on your work because it's definitely, you know, you've, you've really created a clear way. The great thing about what you do is that, you know, in your book you do a great job of it, is that you um, you make it understandable to the everyday person. You know, you, you, the way you put these concepts forward really make it, you know, I'm sure people listening to this right now go, oh, I can see that I am this type of person and, and where I need to go in this direction. And um, that's actually a pretty special talent, especially from someone from academia who does kind of get trained to do a certain way. So um, I think you've done some really great work and I'm sure you're doing more great work. And, and I think the most important thing as a, your 13-year-old writer said is that it's not just some person who's gone, oh, I've had this experience and here's how I think the world should work, is that you've backed it up with, you know, a lifetime of amazing research. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. And um, again, guys, if you want to check out her website and get her book, which I highly recommend, I'll have a link to it in my show notes. Um, But thank you so much and uh, keep up the great work. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Great. Oh, there you go. That's the interview of Carol Dweck, Done and Dusted. Hopefully you guys again got something from that. Um, again, I'll have the link to both of those books for the Amazon bookstore on www.imtalk.me so you can get uh, either Lance's or Carol's books and just go there, click on there, and you'll be able to go through to Amazon and uh, you know get the books from there. Um, last sponsor before I wrap up the show is I'm going to talk about Athlinks.com. And uh, as, we, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, Athlinks have updated the website and if anything they've probably just simplified it a lot more made it a lot easier for you guys to get on there put your information up there and then keep a record of your athletic career and you know to be honest it's one of those things where you know if you do it today you won't regret it in the future and, and you know a really good example of this is myself I write a journal every night and it's something I've done since 19 98 so I've been doing it for 15 years now and it's one of those habits I've just got into at the end of my day just I I write pretty much an A4 page on a journal every night and it's one of those things that you know it's just a habit I've got into but every so often I go back and read my old journals and, and, and it's really out of it to to see the history of your life kind of evolve and unfold in front of you. And, and in a way, Athlinks is like your athletic journal of your career. And, you know, while you're, and you might be in the peak of your career right now where you're absolutely kind of just racing a lot, um, you know, whereas 10, 15 years from now, you might not be in that same place in life. And I think that if you take the time to to put the information into Athlinks after every time you compete, you know, you you won't be you won't regret it in the future when you can look back and see all the results of all the races that you have done. So, you know, I remember we had an interview, I can't remember who it was, on Legends of Triathlon, and they had, the, every race result they'd ever done, they had a spreadsheet of it, and it was it was just awesome to look through their career and just see all their results, and, and I think Athlinks can be that for you. So if you are, if you aren't on Athlinks already, make sure you get on there and you kind of sign up and start to put your information in, and if you are on there, just get into that habit, you know, once you get home from a race, go onto Athlinks. Put the race information in and then you'll be sweet as and you'll have that record forever. So athlinks.com guys, it's a really great resource just to keep a record of what you're doing as an athlete. I've actually recorded the show on Christmas Eve. Now I imagine you guys probably won't actually hear it until after Christmas Day, but if you are hearing it before Christmas Day, have a wonderful Christmas Day. Um, you know, eat lots. Some of you, as I imagine, will be training because that's how we roll. Uh, eat lots, enjoy some time with your family and you know, just enjoy this time of the year. And then uh, New Year's, you know, get out there and have a great time for New Year's as well. You know, I know, again, a lot of us will probably put in training before partying, but, you know, sometimes it's good just to let your hair out and have a bit of a party time on New Year's. So get out and have a wonderful time. Um, next week, we are going to be having another fitness behavior episode. Uh, what's the date today? Let me have a look here. It's the 24th of December. So they'll come out actually just before New Year's. They'll come out on the 31st of December. And then on the 7th of January, uh, we're back to normal. So John will be back in the studios and we're back into the normal kind of routine of, you know, 2014 of I Am Talking. It's a big year next year with Jonbo going to try racing Kona and obviously we'll go over there and fundraise. And the other thing about that, well not fundraise, go and put the shows out for you guys, but the other thing about that is we will be selling the book. We've finished the book now, uh, so we'll be actually putting that out there on the 7th of January. January will be putting out itself. So if you do want to get the book and you want to go into the draw to win, you know, the ultimate O'Connor experience, make sure you get on early around the 7th of January because I imagine, you know, based on the feedback we got when we put the idea out there, the 500 copies will sell pretty quick. So if you do want to get in the draw, get into it and we'll go from there.
Anyway, you guys have a wonderful Christmas and a uh, wicked New Year. And uh, here we go. Let's wrap it up. Uh, what is it? I don't. I can't remember it by myself. It goes. I'm Russ. I'm in. Don't train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha.